there everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Cricket Her podcast. Um, yesterday we were at the Aegeus Bowl um, for one of the final round of Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy matches, Sid. Um, now we already know who the we already knew who the finalists were going to be, um, but that match yesterday between Vipers and Diamonds was quite important, wasn't it? Yeah, so we knew that um, Vipers, Diamonds and Sparks were going to qualify for the knockout stages, but we didn't know what order they were going to be in. One team to qualify directly through to the final. Now, what happened in the end was that Sparks were beaten by Lightning. Um, a little bit of a surprise result, but, you know, obviously a fantastic performance by the Bryce sisters, put on 200 runs between them, um, and that made Sparks' life very difficult that day. You know, it's always the case with cricket that if you have one brilliant performance, then it will make your life hard. Two brilliant performances, then it's going to be really tough. So Sparks didn't win their game, which meant that it was a sort of straight fight between Vipers and Diamonds to see who would qualify directly for the final. The game kind of undulated a bit, didn't it? Um, Bess Heath played a fantastic innings. She was really good. She scored runs quickly. She came in quite late when it looked like Diamonds were going to kind of trundle along to quite a low total, and she really changed the game and made it quite difficult for the Vipers. Um, but the Vipers, you know, largely kept wickets intact. Maya Boucher put in a put in a, a performance, um, and George Adams got another, another second consecutive 50. Um, but really, it was all about George Elwes, wasn't it, Raph? She she was really great. Yeah, she was fantastic, and it was great to speak to her afterwards um, and just reflect on the fact that she is kind of now um, this this senior player with a whole kind of ream of experience, and and in the last couple of Vipers games has really been able to guide them through a couple of quite difficult run chases. Um, so it's you know, and it's so nice to see her doing well because she's such a lovely person, if I may say so. <laughs> um, I thought that one of the issues for Diamonds actually was that they were missing a couple of their really key bowlers, and we're unsure whether it was kind of related to injury or availability but they didn't have either Jenny Gunn or Katie Levick um, playing for them so it will be um, a question about whether they are available for the um, the, se- the sort of second third place match on Wednesday which is going to be in Scarborough hosted by the Diamonds um, and and or the final um, on Saturday indeed and I think that they could be very important because really it did feel yesterday like Diamonds really missed them um, and Georgia Elwes afterwards who I got to got to speak to got to get some quotes from she actually said um, it was a deliberate strategy on on the part of Vipers. We knew that it was okay to start a bit slowly um, and kind of see off the opening bowlers because we then knew that um, you know they they don't they didn't have a couple of key bowlers available um, and that therefore that meant that we could kind of um, just get the runs that way um, off their slightly um, kind of second string bowlers, I suppose. Um, so and it and it worked for Vipers. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens in those last uh, couple of matches. But obviously Vipers through to the final. Sid, are you, as a Vipers fan, are you feeling confident? Oh, well, it's, it's, I think it's been a much tougher competition this year, hasn't it? And, um, you know, the Vipers, would they, wanna, would they rather face Sparks? Well, Sparks have beaten them twice in this year already. Um, you know, thank God the final's not in Hove, because Sparks beaten the Vipers twice at Hove. That would not be a good precedent. Um, we'll, we'll be at Northampton in, in, instead. But, you know, Sparks have got some great players, and Eve Jones uh, and Marie Kelly are both in the best form of their lives. So, you know, you, you, you wouldn't... It's, that's not going to be an easy game. The Diamonds also beat the Vipers in the semi-final of the Charlotte Edwards Cup. So, you know, they've got a little bit of a hold over them as well. So, whoever it is, I think, you know, it's going to be some good cricket played. I still think overall the Vipers are the best team, but they are missing some key players. You know, it, w- it would be wonderful if England were to release Charlie, Charlie Dean and Danny Wyatt for the final. Um, they did release Lauren Winfield last year. So, you know, there's, there's precedent, guys. 
Um, <laughs> there was a plea there to Lisa Kitely. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, no, it's going to be a fantastic game. If you're anywhere North Northampton next next Saturday, get yourself up there. Or down there, depending on which bit of the country you're coming from. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, um, now, changing tack slightly, um, we're actually here at Worcester, I don't know if you can tell by the backdrop. Um, today it's the second ODI between England and New Zealand. Um, England won the first match, of course, um, at Bristol, um, reasonably uh, easily, although there was a bit of a kind of New Zealand hoo-ha at the end, whereby Leah Tahuhu and Lee Casperick looked like they might possibly be about to upset things, but fortunately for the sake of my match report, um, it went England's way in the end. Um, so, based on the fact that England won the last game, Sid, do you think they're likely to make any changes today? I think England will definitely be making some changes. Look, we've got f five ODIs in the space of, what, 11 days, is it? Um, England's schedule isn't quite as chaotic as ours because we've got the RHF games as well. We're doing seven games in 11 days. Um, but that's still a lot of cricket, and I think they're almost certainly going to rotate. Um, and it will be very much about rotation, I think. Um, so, you know, if we don't see Lauren Winfield today, it won't be because she's been dropped. It's been because she's been rotated. Same, you know, England might be bringing Tash Farrant in. Um, again, that'll be a rotation thing. Um, but it'll be a chance to look at all those players. Um, and of course, a, a key one there, talking about looking at players, is Charlie Dean, Raph. What what's, do you think is going to happen there? Oh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I mean, I don't think that there would be any case for dropping her based on her based on how she did in the debut. But it might be, as as you say, a bit of a case of player rotation. I was really encouraged by how she did on debut. Um, it was interesting that at one point Charlotte Edwards, um, who who presented her with her cap um, before play started, which was a really nice touch because obviously Lottie's been her kind of coach and mentor at Hampshire and Southern Vipers for many years, and has really talked her up for England. That was now very very proud, almost like a kind of um, Parental, moment, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, and but when she was in, she was sat sat in the press box for a bit because she was between commentary stints, and and Charlie Dean was kind of bowling her her first overs in international cricket, and she was clearly really nervous. <laughs> I, I mean, Lottie was clearly really nervous. Um, and uh, but Charlie Dean wasn't nervous actually. Crucially, I mean, she probably was inside, but she didn't show it. She looked confident. Um, she's quite a quiet player, I'd say. Um, she's not kind of you know really sort of confident and brash, kind of. You know, which is how I might describe Alice Capsey a bit more. Um, and I think that can be quite difficult, therefore, coming into the England setup um, for your first, you know, for your first match. And there's always going to be nerves. Um, but she she kind of composed herself really well. She held herself really well. Um, she didn't take a wicket for the first few overs. Um, but you know, I was I was going to write anyway that I thought that she'd you know she'd performed admirably. And then what was really nice to see actually was then that. Um, was then that Heather Knight, um, kind of towards the end of the game, when England knew basically that they'd won the match, um, they they brought her back on and they kind of almost said, you know, this is an invitation to take um, a wicket or a couple of wickets at a, at a period of the game when um, you know New Zealand are going to be really going at it because they know that they have to. Um, and she was able to pick up an international wicket. And you know, your first international wicket is always really special. I think it was kind of important for her as an important moment because it gives you confidence then going into your next England game. Um, so I th thought that was good player management from Heather there actually. Um, so I don't know if we'll see her again today, but if we don't then it's no, it's no real slight on her and I think that she looked quite at home. Okay, and we're coming towards the end of the season for us. You've just hinted there that the next few days are going to be a bit hectic, Sid. Ah. <laughs> uh. But once this kind of next 10 days or so is over and done with and we're, we're collapsing, um, what is England's winter going to look like? 
Well, there's some interesting questions there, aren't they? So England is supposed to be going to Pakistan quite shortly in October. Um, now, we've had some developments on that front in a sense this week because uh, New Zealand men uh, were in Pakistan, they were ready to play a series and they pulled out almost literally at the last minute. For once, that last minute thing isn't hyperbole. You know, they, 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 it was all ready to go and they decided that they had some security information come through and they decided not to go ahead with uh, the matches and the players are now flown out of Pakistan. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of controversy on Twitter, obviously, Pakistan fans were very disappointed, the local fans were very disappointed that they didn't go ahead. Um, there were some people saying on Twitter, oh, that New Zealand haven't actually produced what the security information was. The Pakistan authorities also kind of hinted that New Zealand hadn't told them what the security information was. Okay, so uh, first of all, I think that there's, there almost certainly was a security situation. I don't think that's something that you pull out, not at that point. In the, you know, if they pulled out you know, with four weeks to go, then maybe you, know, you go, well, they, they didn't want to go or something. But it does really sound like there was a security situation it's not that if your security services tell you there's a security situation they don't then go and the security situation will announce the press is this um, and I suspect they have actually almost certainly told the the right people in the Pakistan government for this for the, the the security kind of clearance that will be needed but obviously that would not have been passed on to necessarily to the cricketing authorities because again you don't pass on those that security information so does this have any relevance for England women um, does it have relevance for England women? Absolutely, yes it does, because the England women are supposed to be going there shortly. Um, Heather Knight said last week that she was still basically you know, looking forward to going there and she was still expecting to do so. Are they still going to go? Well, the ECB were asked that because obviously the men are supposed to be going as well. They said they'd make an announcement within 24 to 48 hours. Um, we haven't had that announcement. We, we might well get that today. Uh, my feeling is that they're probably not going to go now. And, uh, you know, I feel sorry for the fans in Pakistan and, you know, but the security situation there obviously is you know, a very evolving situation on the ground and I think that's the right call to make. So that's Pakistan, um, but England were then supposed to be going on to the women's ashes in Australia and there have kind of been developments related to that uh, this week as well. Uh, obviously India there at the moment just about to start their series, but also the cricket authorities in Australia have finally acknowledged, despite having said for months that the WBBL will go ahead as normal, they finally acknowledge that that's not going to be possible for the first two weeks at least. They're going to play the first two weeks in Hobart, so all eight teams are flying to Tasmania. Um, will the rest of the competition take place? They're still saying that it will take place as scheduled. That sounds pretty unlikely to me. I think that we're going to see the entire WBBL played uh, in Hobart. And then England are supposed to be flying out for the women's ashes. Raf, what's going to happen there? What do you think that is going to look like? Well, it's a fool's errand, isn't it, to try and guess what's going to be happening with COVID in um, a few months' time. England aren't meant to be flying out to Australia until January. Um, so, you know, it's... Who knows? It's anyone's guess. Um, I think that, um, to be honest, though, given that the Delta variant does seem to have kind of got into Australia, um, it's, we've, we've learned from our own personal experience here in the UK, it's very difficult to stamp down, um, to stamp out once it gets because once it gets to you because it's so infectious. Um, so my feeling is that actually um, to say that everything in, in Australia is going to be back to normal by January would be very optimistic. Sorry for any Australians who are watching and thinking I'm being a pessimist. 
honest um, but I'm, I'm just trying to be realistic um, I think that it would be actually irresponsible of Cricket Australia and the ECB not to be sitting down and going right what's our what's our plan B for the women's ashes um, is it going, going to um, be as similar to what's happened with the India tour is it going to end up whereby the women's ashes all have to be played in one state for example to avoid these um, kind of periods of, of um, necessary quarantine trying to travel between states I mean the, the women's ashes simply isn't long enough for that to be feasible um, so hopefully they are kind of sitting down trying to work that out there's actually though um, an even more worrying question about what happens with the World Cup um, I actually sat down the other day and worked this out for the first time and between England's and Australia's last women's ashes match um, and their opening game of the World Cup which is obviously being played against each other um, there are 13 clear days now, New Zealand's standard of quarantine uh, and, you know, the kind of universal standard of quarantine is 14 days. So it's actually not, with the current schedule, it's not logistically feasible for them to quarantine, even if they were literally to go right from the last match and fly into New Zealand. Um, so something is going to have to give. Is it going to be the World Cup schedule? Is it going to be the Women's Ashes schedule? I suspect it's more likely to be the women's ashes schedule because it's it's easier to reorganise um, something for two teams than it is for eight teams in the World Cup. Um, but something is going to have to be done. Um, and I have to say, if I was uh, the New Zealand or the Indian teams in particular, I'd be positively licking my lips at this because it does look a bit like what's going to happen is that um, England and Australia are basically going to have to go straight from a period of quarantine into um, playing in their first World Cup match and, and the rest of the tournament without any warm-up fixtures, without any real time for training or to get any handle on the conditions. So a really big opportunity there um, to knock out those, those top two teams um, kind of early in the competition, I, w I would say. Um, so yeah, the, the, the schedule was obviously predicated on this idea that you'd be able to travel between Australia and New Zealand without any quarantine, which you were able to do um, for a period, weren't you? Um, but now, not so much, and the New Zealand government have been very cautious, understandably so. Um, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely, rightly so. And I think that there's a little bit of an extent which it feels like the cricket or cricketing authorities are going, shall we take COVID into account? Or maybe COVID will just disappear. No, guys, it's not going to disappear. It's still going to be there. And there's going to be, you know, a hard collision if you don't take that into account, particularly with the, the New Zealand government's zero COVID approach. The New Zealand government have said privately to people off the record, we've heard off the record that people are being told, you know, the World Cup will go ahead. The New Zealand government are going to make every effort to ensure that that happens. It's their up absolute priority for, for sport in New Zealand for the next year. Um, but, you know, there are going to have to be steps taken. Yeah. And they will probably argue it's not their problem that England and Australia set up a, a bilateral series to go ahead straight beforehand. Uh, anyway, we'll have to see. So basically the answer to what will England's winter look like is we don't really know. In other news this week, uh, Sid, man-cadding has been in the news very much, hasn't it? Um, after Rafa, are you sure there shouldn't be woman-cadding? Well, it depends, Sid, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway... Sorry. <laughs> uh, Cameroon bowler Maeva Duma um, has kind of shot to fame overnight after she man-cadded uh, not one, not two, not three, but four Ugandan players in Cameroon's fixture v Uganda. Um, so that's very much been in the news, being talked about. Sid, you've got some views on this. 
Yeah, the whole, okay, well, I mean, having views on man-cutting is a dangerous thing to do. You know, you find out on social media that, that you know, you discuss man-cutting and suddenly, you know, half the world, whichever side you come down on, half the world thinks you're a terrible person. And, you know, there's, it feels like there's a new scale of evil where you've got, like, you know, Osama Bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, that bloke on Twitter that talked about man-cutting. Um, <laughs> but, you know... I think that the real issue with man-cadding, actually, is, you know, if, if we kind of, kind of step away from the controversy, the real issue is that um, what we're trying to do, obviously, is protect against the, the striker kind of taking the mickey, sorry, the non-striker taking the mickey and, you know, running halfway up the pitch. But the problem is that the punishment, you know, is like far in excess of, of the crime. So the crime is, you know, stealing a couple of yards. The punishment is you lose your entire wicket. Most people agree that punishment is too harsh, which is why almost everybody thinks that you should issue a warning before before you actually mancad somebody, what I, th what I think we need to do is cut the entire Gordian knot um, and you know get rid of the the issue completely by introducing us a very different kind of a rule, which doesn't make a huge amount of difference to the way the game is played. I think we should have a new law that says at the moment the ball leaves the bowler's hand, if the non-striking batsman is not in their crease at the, the bowler's end, then no runs can be scored off that delivery. It's not a no-ball or anything, it's still a legitimate delivery, but you can't score any runs on it. So whatever happens, if you tonk it into the stands for six, you get no runs because the the non-striking batter was out of their crease. What do you think of that as a way of cutting through, Raf? I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but it does add a layer of complexity. And of course, it would only ever be possible in matches where you had um, a, a, a third umpire. Um, because the umpires on the ground wouldn't be able to look out for that. I mean, they can barely spot no balls. The the umpire behind the stumps is meant to be looking down to see the trajectory of the ball. They're not going to be able to um, kind of spot when somebody's out of their ground at the non-striker's end. So um, for most matches, other than kind of very top internationals, um, it wouldn't be feasible really, would it? Um, we've only recently had DRS introduced in, in women's international cricket. Um, obviously now all of the um, England women's home internationals are played with DRS, but that's been a very recent development. So um, it, just, it just strikes me that um, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. It would create another problem, which is that you need more DRS and you need more third umpire technology. Um, it certainly wouldn't have made a difference to Cameroon v Uganda because <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that they didn't have uh, TV reviews available to them. Um, in that match so uh, interesting solution um, but not really workable sorry Sid okay well if you've got a better solution tell us all about it below the line or on Twitter or whatever okay uh, well that's that for this week I believe so we're off to watch the cricket the bells of the cathedral are ringing out for the service this morning we'll be going to our own service um, at the Worcester County Cricket Ground we'll see you next week bye